0: It's 1983. One of America's most heinous serial killers is arrested in Texas. He then confesses to hundreds of murders. A 16-year-old Jane Doe in upstate New York among them. But did this sexual deviant actually commit that murder? Or is it another one of his many, many lies? My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and author of 40-plus true crime books. I've dedicated the past 20 years of my life to helping families of the missing and murdered. Join me. We're crossing the line. Maya Angelou famously said, when someone shows you who they are, believe them the first time. Of course, there's wisdom in that quote for your romantic life or your friendships, but the true crime version of that I've come up with also holds true. When a serial killer tells you how vile he is, believe him. I'm not talking about everything they say, of course. Serial killers are liars after all. I'm talking about where it relates to details of their kills. Yet, as a journalist or anyone who does this kind of work, getting to this horrific truth can consume a lot of time, energy, and mental strength. I've been there. I've done it. As I've interviewed psychopaths and serial killers over the years, some of them get off on talking about the bloody brutality they've been involved in. Makes them feel kind of, you know, superior. It's that God complex thing. It can be particularly draining when they start exaggerating or straight-up lie. Some, not long after they're arrested, will begin spewing their bullshit about dozens of victims, some that aren't even theirs. Happy Face Killer claimed 166 in those days after his arrest. Then it was 50-something. I mean, uh, throughout the years I spoke to Happy Face, he was all over the place with his numbers, finally settling on eight. Henry Lee Lucas, the inhuman I'm talking about today, claimed over 100 at first. And when he saw how much attention he got from that, he upped it to 600. I have no idea why anyone, better yet law enforcement, would believe him after that. But apparently they did. Look, I could spend two, three episodes on Lucas's story, which is a complex mixture of pathological lies, serial murder, controversy, law enforcement malice, and speculation. But that would be rehashing a story a dozen or so true crime podcasts and TV shows have already done, and there's no need whatsoever to give Lucas any more airtime than necessary. But what I'm going to cover isn't the sum total of his brutality. Instead, we'll hone in on one particular confession he made that stuck me in the gut. The devil, after all, is in the details. Let's talk about Henry Lee Lucas for one minute, though. He is the youngest of eight children, and he claims both his parents were abusive, savage alcoholics. We've heard this story before when talking about serial killers, how bad a childhood they've had. It's generally true, considering that very few on record have ever said they had a normal childhood. Lucas says his mother was a sex worker who performed sex acts on Johns in front of him. He also claimed his mother forced him to put on girls' clothes when he was a child. And when she got really angry with him, she'd kill his favorite pets in front of him. Now, we know Lucas is a pathological liar— But that childhood traumatic information likely has a kernel of truth in it, at least, knowing the type of murders he later commits. Lucas's father, a moonshiner by trade, was in such a rage one night after his wife brought home yet another John that he got blasted drunk, left the house, and stumbled onto the train tracks. He passed out in a drunken stupor on the tracks, and a train came by and took off both of the old man's legs. At least that is the story.
1: That old chestnut.
0: I, I'm sorry I sound on the verge of laughing, but I don't know why that, it just sounds so outrageous that this guy passed out on the train tracks with his legs flapped. Over. It almost, to me, when I think about the imagery, it's like a cartoon. It seems like a cartoon to yeah. me. Mm-hmm. Right?
1: Like he was tied up on the train tracks almost. It's a really bad place to pass out drunk.
0: That is the voice, by the way, of my wonderful, beautiful producer, Catherine Law, who you're going to hear from time to time on the show. So from that day on, his father was known as, look, I'm not making this up, no legs, Lucas, and ran an iron-fisted household from a sort of dolly with four wheels. He rolled around the house and... So picture this for a moment, Henry Lucas's father, no legs, and he's on sort of like a little trolley that he pushes with his fists on the ground, and he's rolling around the house kind of abusing everybody.
1: I imagine it's a little bit like, I don't know if you had this back in your day, but in elementary school, like one day a year, we would have these little flat squares with wheels on the bottom. We would roll around on them and play games and you stuff. Got I it. imagine it being a little bit like
0: this. You got it. <laughs>
1: And, I mean, of course, the thing is, like, we never want to make fun of disabled people or anything like that. But, like, this guy was, like, a real shitbag. Like, he was really terrible.
0: Yeah. Years later, Lucas's father would die after spending a night passed out in a snowbank and catching pneumonia. But, look, that's a story for another time. I mean, who knows if that's true, too. We just don't know. When we talk about Henry Lee Lucas, what do we really know? Lucas says his brother accidentally stabbed him in the eye as a child, and his parents ignored the infection, causing him to lose an eye. That injury, along with the fact that he had several missing teeth, later added to Lucas looking the part of a real-life boogeyman. I mean, you know, Henry Lee Lucas is the monster in your closet as a child, the monster underneath your bed. He, he is the boogeyman. Lucas also claims as a young boy, he had sex with his half-brother and was into bestiality. What we're talking about here is not your average neighborhood boy, okay? I will say that Lucas's mother must have done something to the guy because beginning in 1960, he did time in a Michigan prison for stabbing her in the neck with a knife and killing her after she allegedly hit him with a broom. I want you to just picture that scene in your head for a second. The one-eyed toothless monster being chased down by the sex worker in her pink housecoat, fuzzy slippers, and then her thrashing him with a broom, and then Henry turning around and stabbing her with a butcher knife, killing his own mother. Again, not your normal childhood household. Henry served just 10 out of a 40-year sentence for that murder and was paroled in 1975. Of course, he violated his parole while attempting to abduct three girls. After his release, he then married a pen pal he had been corresponding with in prison and was accused of sexually abusing her daughter not long into the marriage. By 1977, they were divorced. From there, he moves to Florida. Now, while at a soup kitchen, get this, he befriends none other than Otis Tool, another vicious piece of shit serial killer who I refuse to even talk about other than mentioning his name and that he is likely the killer of Adam Walsh. Adam Walsh is the son of America's Most Wanted host, John Walsh. Tool, like Lucas, also lied about how many people he murdered. Through his friendship with Otis Tool, Lucas meets Becky Powell, Tool's niece. In her young teens, then, Becky and Lucas take off together. Or to view it with today's perspective and really to view it as it should be viewed, Lucas kidnapped a 15-year-old girl, even if she chose to go with him, okay? Long story short, Lucas murders Becky as well as an elderly woman he met on the trip. In 1983, just eight years out of prison, he is arrested in Texas, not for murder but for a weapons possession charge. Unreal. Now, while he's incarcerated, Lucas begins to talk, admitting to the murder of Becky Powell and that elderly woman. He then proceeds to claim he has murdered upwards, as I said at the beginning, 600 human beings, and can prove it, he says, with details, names, places. Look, almost all of this is utter bullshit. It's narcissistic, psychopathic, nonsense. It's not even delusion or fantasy because Lucas knows full well he is lying and he's enjoying this game. Still, droves of law enforcement from all over the country show up in Texas to interview him in relation to 3,000 different murder and missing person cases. And And I might just stop here for a minute and talk about that because I hear this from serial killers that I interview all the time. It's like, As soon as I was arrested, law enforcement starts coming in from all over the country wanting to tie cases to me and wanting me to admit to cases. So, you know, this is what happens. A serial killer gets arrested in Utah. Cops from different states say, hey, we could place you in our state during this time. Did you kill this missing person? So this is kind of the natural progression of law enforcement investigation. However, Lucas plays into this. Lucas is given the royal prison celebrity red carpet treatment. He's taken out of prison into police custody. He's unhandcuffed. But more than that, he's allowed to roam around various police precinct rooms and given fast food and luxuries other inmates were not, including his favorite, strawberry milkshakes, which only further feeds his narcissistic need to continue lying to continue controlling the situation, to continue enjoying this situation. Remember, they're giving him all this attention and he's just lapping it up.
1: Right. In that situation, why wouldn't you just keep talking? Because you're going to have more days where you're not just like sitting in your jail cell.
0: And you're eating fast food and you're drinking Mm -hmm. strawberry milkshakes and everybody's paying Mm -hmm. all this attention to you. Why not? What's important to point out here, though, is that Lucas had access to records law enforcement had been using to question him. So in effect, his lies were based in truth, though it was not his truth. We have no idea how many he murdered and never will. It was likely nowhere near even 1% of the numbers he gave. Basically, that 600 number would mean Lucas killed a new victim every five days or so during those eight years from when he got out of prison until he was arrested. That's just impossible without getting caught. And look, Henry Lucas was an idiot, stupid as a bag of rocks. There's no way he could kill 10 people even, in my estimation, without getting caught. But I want to get back to our real focus today. It's one of the victims Lucas confesses to murdering. A Jane Doe found on November 10, 1979, in a cornfield in upstate New York. Many months before that, a teenager runs away from home. A teenager who'd spent 37 years as that forgotten Jane Doe. We'll find out about this and Lucas's connection to it, or possible connection, when we return. So in mid-1979, Tammy Jo Alexander is 16 years old and she runs away from her home in Florida. She's at a difficult place in her short life. She had grown up in several different foster homes. She lived with her intensely emotionally disturbed mother in Brooksville, Florida for a time and then with her grandmother in that same town. I can say from personal experience, you reject a kid at 14, 15, 16, basically telling them that they're on their own and unwanted, there's going to be fallout from that in the child's life. Abandonment on any level is traumatic enough, but to abandon a child because they're inconvenient? I mean, this crushes their self-esteem. So you look at the opportunity Tammy Alexander had and it's it's not much. I can kind of relate to why she ran away. Tammy had blonde hair, chin length, those big 70s-era hot roller curls. Her smile was magnetic and drew you right into her warm disposition, and what those who knew her said was her bubbly, charming energy. It's been claimed that Tammy was a, quote, experienced hitchhiker, end quote, and started working at a truck stop as a waitress when she was just 15. I'll call that what it is, survival. She had the drive to take care of herself when those in her life who were supposed to be there for her failed. Being around truckers, Tammy would simply catch a ride when she wanted to get out of town. In 1978, Tammy and a high school friend managed to hitchhike from Florida all the way to Los Angeles, essentially running away from home. Tammy's friend later said their home lives were atrocious and her mother, quote, put Joan Mommy dearest Crawford to shame." End quote. It wasn't long after they made it to LA that Tammy's high school friend's parents find them and put both girls on a plane back home. Their fresh start and new life in the city of angels had been thwarted. In the spring of 1979, Tammy is back in her hometown of Brooksville, Florida, and I just want to paint a picture of this town for a minute here. A 2010 census had the population at 7,700, so figure how much lower that would have been in 1979. Small town stuff here, right? And Tammy wanted nothing to do with it or her abusive mother. She knew. She really knew her life was going nowhere if she stayed. So what did she do? She ran away again, but this time by herself. Months went by, and as Tammy made her way around the country, she stayed in touch with her former high school boyfriend, Kevin. So I want to play a tape right now. Police believe this is one of the three recordings Tammy sent to her boyfriend during the time she went missing. Well, Hi, Kevin.
1: How are you doing? I'm fine. That was nice to hear from you. I'm very glad to get you
0: letter. home. She tells Kevin she is very glad that he is better. She also says it was nice to hear from you. I have to ask myself, what does this say? First, it's clear they were communicating while Tammy was gone. I mean, that's obvious. But what else does this tell us? Kevin is the only known person she's in contact with. I want to play a second recording now. Police later got their hands on, which they also believe is Tammy Joe Alexander.
1: I gotta go now, so you
0: take care and be careful. Kind of hard to make out, but I believe Tammy says, I gotta go now, so you be careful and take care. Neither recording tells us the whole story, but this second recording does give the impression that Tammy didn't have a lot of time to talk. I mean, that's kind of what I feel when I listen to this over and over and over again. And it sounds to me like Tammy is going somewhere or she's with someone and is being summoned to get moving along and get off the phone. My investigative nature tells me Tammy went to what she knew best as she planned to run away. Remember, she had worked at that truck stop. She knew truckers who traveled the country. So to me, her saying, I got to go now, might mean she's with one of those truckers and needs to continue traveling wherever it is the trucker is heading. There's a third tape of Tammy I'll play in a minute. But first, I want to talk about what I believe is an important part of Tammy's case. In 2004, a pattern was discovered by an FBI analyst from Oklahoma. Body after body was being dumped along what is called the Interstate 40 Corridor in Texas, Mississippi, Arkansas, and Oklahoma. That analyst, working with a cop in Texas, reached out to the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program within the FBI, VICAP for short. VICAP used its extensive database of records and details of unsolved cases to see if a similar pattern popped up anywhere else in the country. In short, the Highway Serial Killings Initiative was born. The idea was to determine patterns of bodies, locations, and manner and cause of death, to determine if there was a set of serial killers working along the highways of America.
1: I think this is a good place to point out that really only in the last 10 to 15 years and that would put this, you know, 2004 right in in that time frame. Right. But really only in the last 10 to 15 years have Precincts been working together. Before that, 70s, 80s, even 90s, it was very much, well, this is my jurisdiction and you're not getting access to any of my information because I'm going to crack this case. When we now know that if these different precincts and jurisdictions were sharing information, so many more crimes could be solved. Just like in the Adam Walsh case that you mentioned earlier, there were other crimes in the area that were so similar. And if they had just talked to the county over or the town over, they could have solved that so much faster.
0: Uh, You make a great point about what the FBI does very well, because the FBI is all about data, right? So the FBI has data banks of, okay, there's – and I'm just using numbers as an example. There's 60 bodies along highway – I-15 for 600 miles that are missing heads. Mm -hmm. There's another 20 bodies that are missing heads and arms, Mm -hmm. right? There's another 50 bodies with blue eyes, blonde hair. They're all sex workers. So that data spits out and all of a sudden you see a pattern, you see a connection, right? And, And really that's what VICAP does. And that's what it's doing in this highway serial killing initiative. Yeah. And as that data starts coming in, holy hell. Is there a pattern here? For one, the FBI saw that the victims they had discovered were primarily women who were living high-risk, transient lifestyles, often involving substance abuse and sex work.
1: Especially back then, there was this this idea that if you tell the public, well, these were just sex workers, well, these were just drug addicts, well, these were just so-and-so, the general population thinks, well, like, I'm safe. You know, it's this need to make people like regular old women in their houses, moms and other people feel like they're safe because they're not living those high-risk lifestyles. But at the end of the day, these are still people. They're people who had traumatic childhoods, just like Tammy Jo did, who – We're forced into these types of lifestyles.
0: I agree. And sometimes the FBI and even law enforcement in general can be too matter of facts. I mean, Mm -hmm. when they're speaking here, they're speaking primarily about facts. And then, of course, the assumption is we're all safe. And and look-
1: It's not going to hurt normal people. Well, Well,
0: look, you've heard me say this a couple of times on Crossing the Line that- The average person in their home should be in no fear of a serial killer coming in the door and killing them because serial killers do prey upon certain victimology, certain victim pools. I mean, these victims here were routinely being picked up at truck stops and fuel stations around the country, raped, murdered, then dumped along a major highway. Right. The primary suspect, often called an unsub or unidentified subject, was an over-the-road long-haul trucker. So picture a dude all jacked up on amphetamines, traveling all over the country, crisscrossing the highway systems, someone who could seemingly pick up a girl in Alabama, kill her in Cleveland, and dump her in Wyoming, all without taking a day off of work. The problem with solving any of these cases was lack of forensic evidence, generally because a long time had passed between the murder and discovery of the body, so you know, there was also the mobility of the offender to consider. And, you know, I've always been told by serial killers and especially one long-haul trucker serial killer that the farther you get away from the body, the farther you get away from being caught. But as the FBI studied the cases, the numbers that came in were staggering. The FBI realized it had a major problem on its hands. And I'm talking about over-the-road killer truckers who were likely the most prolific serial killers in the country. The dead algorithm, let's call it, spat out over, you ready? 500 victims fitting the profile. And then I find this very interesting, this next number. It also spit out over 200 potential suspects in those murders. So that's 100 fewer victims and 199 more suspects, I should add, than Henry Lee Lucas, our babbling idiot, who had certain cops believing, he single-handedly killed 600. So what we have is 500 homicide victims found along the highways within the United States, with certain areas showing larger clusters than others. Of course, Florida, which is no freaking surprise to me, is one of the major contributors here. The upper Midwest also. Oklahoma showed another very active area. Los Angeles, San Francisco, the Seattle region had a bit of an issue too. But one specific route from Washington, D.C. north into Boston displayed a very active pattern. I'll post a link to the map on crossingtheline.biz, the official website of the show, if you want to take a look at the staggering numbers in certain regions. One of these bodies left along this corridor, however, was that of Tammy Jo Alexander, a name which eluded authorities for nearly four decades. After the break, you'll hear more about her murder and the clues that finally confirmed her identity after all that time. About six months after Tammy Jo Alexander ran away, on November 10th, 1979, in a backcountry town about 25 miles southwest of Rochester, New York, called Caldonia, the body of a young girl, about 16, is found in a cornfield. Her clothes are intact. She's wearing a red adult male windbreaker with black stripes down the arms, tan corduroy jeans, a multicolored purple, pink, and gray plaid cotton and polyester shirt, blue knee socks, and brown ripple-soled shoes. And... She had no identification on her. Law enforcement has no idea who she is. She was shot in the head with a 38 caliber weapon, then dragged from New York State Route 20 into a cornfield before being shot in the back, which is a bit odd to me. In all the cases I've looked at, this just that scenario is just really strange to me. You'd think it'd be the other way around, shot in the back and then in the head. There were a few other pieces of evidence found on her body. She was wearing a necklace, silver with three small turquoise stones, one clearly a bird. Then there was a locket and keychain set found. One piece shaped in a heart with a section cut out into the side of it, like a key that fit into that section. An inscription reading, he who holds the key can open my heart. Tammy, remember, was on the road. No one knew where, but calling her ex-boyfriend, Kevin, and leaving him messages, including the third and final one, you're about to hear.
1: Ooh, that was cool. I'm looking at a postcard that says, Moon over Miami, the alluring blue beauty of moonrise, shimmering over the Atlantic Ocean in Florida. She's got two palm trees, the moon, the ocean, and a girl in a white shirt and black pants. On it
0: and it's blue. beautiful, so please, beautiful. Yeah. I'm looking at a postcard that says moon over Miami. It's hard to hear, but she's describing this postcard. She calls the card beautiful, pretty beautiful, you know? Nobody, as far as I could find, heard from Tammy ever again. But nobody files a missing person report. No one comes looking for Tammy Joe Alexander. She just disappears, and worse, she's forgotten. And in Livingston County, New York, a mystery befuddles cops and missing person investigators. The body in the cornfield that young girl murdered so brutally and dragged into the field cannot be identified. She becomes known as Caledonia Jane Doe. The one major clue is that her body displayed fresh bikini tan lines. This is important. This tells investigators in New York that she's definitely from somewhere in the south or the west coast. You know, it's it's not a big clue, but it's a start. And after searching databases and putting her fingerprints into the system and even years later into CODIS, nothing emerges. Then they discover the keychain, the heart and the key. Remember that I described that the Caledonia Jane Doe was wearing, which was fastened to her belt loops. It was purchased at one of the New York Thruway rest stops truckers frequent. Doggedly going from rest stop to rest stop, detectives find out she was seen at the Lima rest stop about twenty five miles south of Rochester. Employees there recall a young girl fitting Jane Doe's description, and she's with an older guy. He's white, he's five eight, or slightly taller, curly hair and glasses. They even recall what she ordered ham, potatoes, and corn. A sketch is drawn of the guy and it's distributed. Nothing ever comes of that. Tammy's case goes cold yet again. But while her family and friends have seemed to have forgotten about Tammy Joe, I'll say this, investigators in New York, they never give up. They never stop looking for who Jane Doe is and who killed her. 36 years after she's found in that cornfield, pollen on the body proves that she had been in Florida then DNA from the body comes back in 2015. To announce that we have identified our Jane Doe from 1979 to finally be able to put a name to her. Like I said, I, I can't even tell you how much it means, how proud I am of our sheriff's office. The Livings County Sheriff's Office investigators have been working closely with the Hernando County Sheriff's Office, and we did. Identify our Jane Doe, 1979, as Tammy Jo Alexander. Caledonia Jane is confirmed to be Tammy Jo Alexander. The lead investigator, Livingston County Sheriff John York, who was the first officer on the scene in that cornfield, said this at a press conference.
1: This case could have been solved long ago had she had a parent, had she had a family that cared enough to want to even make a missing persons report.
0: While Tammy has been identified, the sad truth is that her case is still unsolved and her killer is still at large. Re enter scumbag Henry Lee Lucas, the serial killer, who claims he murdered Caledonia Jane Doe. And yet that lie has been proven to be just that more bullshit from a scumbag psychopath. That sketch of the guy at the rest stop with Jane is quite opposite of what Lucas looks like. Though he could have worn a disguise, some would argue maybe. I call bullshit on that. It simply wasn't his MO.
1: The other thing too is if you see this guy at a rest stop and you're working there, wouldn't you say he had one eye? Like he very clearly is missing an eye.
0: He had one eye and he had half his teeth. Right. That'd be the first thing (laughs) I would describe. A one-eyed toothless guy. (laughs) Right. Right. In fact, I can see the sketch now. In fact, I'm going to draw one. I'd love to see it. He seemed like he
1: had a penchant for bestiality. Who can tell? Yeah.
0: You know? (laughs) By the 2000s, Lucas had been exposed as a liar after he couldn't give details about crime scenes and the mileage of his car did not add up to him traveling all over the country on a freaking killing spree. So how could he have known the details to hundreds of cases? Well... Texas Rangers had cleared 213 cases with Lucas, meaning they had attributed all of those cases to Henry Lee Lucas's hand. But several investigators were later exposed as having given Lucas details about many of the cases he cleared beyond asking him leading questions. Imagine that. Investigators simply wanting to close cases fed Lucas information about those cases so they could solve them.
1: So they like gave him the information basically that he needed to say. Yeah.
0: Let's 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 do it. So Catherine, mm-hmm. um, it's seventy five degrees in LA today, isn't it, Catherine?
1: It is seventy five degrees in LA today. There you go. Yeah. It's actually like ninety, but that's okay. It's neither here nor there. <laughs>
0: To me, this is an abomination, a disgraceful way to treat victims of murder and their families, just to close some cases. In the Tammy Alexander Caledonia Jane Doe case, the only piece of evidence connecting Lucas to it is his confession, which, you know, we know is very unreliable. In fact, not reliable at all. One investigator believes that serial killer Christopher Beauty queen killer Wilder murdered Tammy. Wilder is good for a dozen rapes and eight murders. The jacket Tammy was wearing had been purchased from auto sports products, and Wilder was a race car driver, not to mention he liked to lure young girls by promising a modeling contract. I mean, it's easy to speculate he may have killed Tammy. There was a male DNA sample found on Tammy's clothing, and three men she knew were tested. There was no match. After beauty queen killer Christopher Wilder was compared to the DNA, it came back inconclusive. How Tammy was eventually identified is very interesting and the tenacity of the investigators is what helped identify her really and may prove just as important to catching her killer in the end. Her parents never filed a missing persons report and shame on them for that. To me, that is just, I'm not gonna go there.
1: You really get a picture of how little anyone cared if she lived or died. When when she was brought back from California, it was her friend's parents that she was with that brought her back. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, I mean it's just, it's inconceivable as a parent. In 2014, that ex-boyfriend, Kevin, and Tammy Joe's half-sister got together and filed a missing person's report after searching the internet for Tammy and not finding anything about her. The report made it to New York, and Tammy's half-sister's DNA was tested against Caledonia Jane Doe, and boom, a match. So that's how the cornfield girl, Caledonia Jane Doe, was identified.
1: Wow. It was
0: Kevin and Tammy Joe's half-sister just searching the internet, and they couldn't find anything about her.
1: Right, like you, we've all done that where it's like, oh, remember so-and-so from high school, I wonder where exactly. they're at now and you start with Facebook and you start Googling and you're like, wait, there's nothing about Tammy Jo anywhere.
0: That's how her, this case came together by two people sitting down and searching for somebody and not finding anything. That's fascinating. Beyond the identification, investigators were able to begin a victimology and interview everyone who knew Tammy with the idea of retracing her footsteps and hopefully finding out how she wound up in upstate New York, finally, just finally, Tammy is getting the attention she deserves. You know, I love what the Livingston County Sheriff said most recently. I promise you this, this cold case is burning hot. We're going to be working on it harder than ever. I mean, I just love that because, you know, they didn't give up in Livingston County and they're not gonna give up now. In the end, it was strangers who cared most about Tammy Jo Alexander, with two people from her old life stepping up, taking a chance, asking questions, and caring enough to do something. Investigators are hoping for tips to the FBI hotline, which is, get your pens and pencils ready, 1-800-225-5324, and, you know, so... If you knew Tammy Joe Alexander or you have any information about this case or if you're connected to it in any way in New York, give that number a call and say something. So with that, I will see you all next week on Crossing the Line. And you better subscribe or you know what? (laughs) Crimes will be committed.
1: (laughs) We're just outright threatening the fan base.
0: I didn't say crimes against them would... I didn't say crimes against the fans would be committed. I said crimes would be committed. I will start breaking into homes. And I will start subscribing (laughs) on their computers. That's what I meant.
1: (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. Sources for today's episode come from... Police released new information on 41st anniversary of Tammy Jo Alexander murder, RochesterFirst.com, November 10, 2020. How the confession killer tackled the myth of history's worst serial killer by Maria Elena Fernandez, Vulture. He was America's most deadly serial killer, but it was all a lie by Arian Horton, The Guardian. Police ID teen found dead in cornfield in 79 by Gary Craig and Tina Yee, Democrat and Chronicle.
0: Crossing the Line is a production of iHeartRadio. It's executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Catherine Law. Special thanks to producer Rose Bacci and EP Christina Everett. Audio engineering, original music, and sound design by Matt Russell. Additional thanks to Will Pearson at iHeartRadio. The series theme, number 444, is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Tom Mooney.